Stacks has got it going on when it comes to culture and benefits. Folks at the firm report fantastic compensation, promotions based on meritocracy instead of tenure, there's a novel idea, a collegial culture with a small office feel, outstanding professional development opportunities, and much more. If you haven't heard of Stacks yet, the firm is a boutique strategy consultancy that focuses on projects along the private equity investment lifecycle. Projects include commercial due diligence, exit planning, value creation for PE portfolio companies, and much more. If a consulting role with this fast-growing firm interests you, see Open Roles and get your application in at Stacks.com. That's S-T-A-X.com. Or click the link in this episode's show notes. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Pete Giorgio, a principal in Deloitte's strategy practice and leader of the firm's US and global sports practice. In this episode, we talked to Pete about the business model of sports, both on the franchise level and the league level, and how the landscape is rapidly shifting. Let's dive right in. Pete, welcome back to Strategy Simplified. Really excited for part two of our conversation on the business model of professional sports. Where does this podcast find you today? I am sitting in Deloitte, New York headquarters at uh, 30 Rockefeller Center. And uh, thanks for having me back. It's my pleasure. Pete, I have to start here. The last time we connected, it was mid-March, right before March Madness. And we ended up making some final four picks that went terribly, horribly wrong. Uh, I think much like 99.9% of the other uh, rest of the country. Uh, I don't really have an excuse. Just wondering what the heck happened to Purdue? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was more worried. My bigger pick was Indiana on the women's side. So, uh, yeah, and they 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 did a little better than Purdue, but uh, not much. Yeah, it was a it was a rough one. So it, I uh, feel sorry for the Boilermaker fans out there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so so uh, there you have it. Don't take any uh, Final Four prognostications from uh, me or Pete. At least not next year you <laughs> have reams of data that support that conclusion yeah. so <laughs> well pete for those of uh those of our listeners who missed the first conversation uh by the way we've linked to it in the show notes if you missed it go ahead and and catch up after this episode but for those of us who aren't familiar with who you are and your background can you just give us a 30 second summary yeah yeah no uh it's great yeah so pete giorgio again I'm a partner at Deloitte. I run both our U.S. sports practice as well as our global sports practice. Have a history as a as a strategy uh, consultant, uh, originally at Monitor Group, uh, which some of you may have heard of from back in the day. But then Deloitte bought that about ten years ago, so I've been at Deloitte for the past ten years. Fantastic! And today, Pete, we're really going to be picking your brain on the business model of professional sports uh, and th- the marriage of two of my favorite things in the world, uh, business strategy and sports. So as a start, can you just define the market for us? When I say professional sports, uh, what does that mean to you? Are we talking about the leagues, the franchises, both? Can you just expand on that? Yeah, I, you know, as we define it, it's, it's. I would say the core of, at least we at Deloitte define it, it is the leagues, it's the it's the uh, the teams, you know, generally the properties, right? So in, in the in the sports world, we call them properties. Anybody who who has a property that's a sort of sell in the market. Um, it also includes the Olympic movement. So a lot of the organizations, uh, like here in the U.S., the USOPC or the IOC globally, but that expand you know extends into you know national Olympic committees, 
also international federations, you know, all of those types of organizations, all the way down to, you know, USA Badminton here in the United States. So it includes all of those. Um, for us, it includes esports, uh, at least the, the I would say, the league and team side of esports, uh, as well as college sports as well. Um, but then, you know, very closely related are the media partners, the ESPNs of the world, where we collaborate with our with our media practice. Um, the retailers or the or the consumer products companies of the world, like the Nikes and 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 those sorts of folks, and others as well that are uh, sort of close in as well. So, absolutely, there's a lot of adjacencies to the professional sports market. Uh, more and more every day. I mean, I, I do think one of the interesting things about the industry is the convergence. Right. Um, and, and we're seeing that not just in sports, obviously, but across all of media and entertainment. Now that we've defined some of the players and, and some of the segments at a high level, uh, would love to just open up the conversation by asking you to uh, dive a little deeper into the forces that you think are really shaping the industries we see it today. So the way that I think about it is through Porter's five forces. And for those of us who may not be familiar, those forces are the threat of new entrants suppliers, buyers, substitutes, and competitive rivalry. Uh, which of these forces do you think shapes the industry more than others and how? Um, you know, I think probably, you know, it's it's interesting to think about new entrants because, you know, there's a lot of, of new and emerging sports that are always vying for our attention. And so whether that's, you know, you think about, you know, sort of historically the core, you know, five or six main sports in the U.S., but then how do you think about, you know, the rise of some of the combat sports, uh, you know, in the U.S. and globally as well? And so I do think, you know, constantly there is this question of like, what's the new hot sport? What's the next sport that, that's going to come up? How do sports, um, you know, one of the biggest determinants actually of somebody who's going to be a fan of a sport is whether or not they played it as a kid. Right. And so thinking about where and how youth sports affects that, too. And. And our kids playing more basketball or volleyball or lacrosse or football or badminton or archery or or esports, um, you know, will have huge effects there. And so, I do think there is always this question of of what are those sports and and how will those play out. Um, but also, again, uh, you know, substitutes. You know, sports is one of the myriad of different ways that that fans and, and consumers sort of engage in entertainment. And so when you have, you know, thinking about plans for Saturday night, are you going to a baseball game? Are you going to go to a movie? You're going to go to a concert. You're going to stay home and watch something on TV. Um, and where and how, you know, sports organizations vie for, for not just those dollars, but also those eyeballs, right? Um, uh, because that's actually a lot of what sports does is monetize a lot of those eyeballs that they bring to those sports. Um, so, so it, it, you know, if you think about something interesting like buyers, for me, you know, there is buyers in a bunch of different ways in the sports world. There's obviously the fans and what they want to, what they are looking for, either in in an experience going to a game or what they expect from an app associated with a sport or a team or where and how they they want to buy merchandise. Um, there's also an interesting market for the teams themselves. Right, where and how various people are buying and selling sports organizations in even new and different ways too um, is fascinating too. So, I do think thinking about the five forces is fascinating because I do think just about all of those has profound effects on the ecosystem and on the industry itself. 
I want to dive a little bit deeper into one of the things that you mentioned, because from the outside looking in, it seems like to me that this is a, a growing pie. The market is growing rapidly, but at the same time, uh, it's a zero sum game because as a league or as a team, I'm fighting for the attention of my fans or of potential fans. And there's only a limited amount of attention to go around. And so if I'm a upstart pickleball league or volleyball league or a UFC type of league, how do I start to gain a foothold in Gen Z or even the younger generation? So that 10, 20, 30 years down the line, I've, I've got a rabid fan base. Are you seeing tactics or strategies that leagues are employing to start to bring those younger fans onto their side right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it is it is one of the focus areas of a lot of the leagues. But but it, you have to actually eat, back that up even further because you know if you, let's take um, uh, let's take pickleball, great example, right? Obviously, a sport that's you know had a tremendous amount of growth, especially in the U.S. recently. Uh, a lot of press about it. You know, there's different ways to think about that growth. Obviously, a lot more people are playing it. It, it just seems like. More every time I turn around, tennis courts are turning into pickleball courts. You hear that distinctive, you know, uh, wiffle ball type noise of the of the of the um, paddle hitting the ball, um, and you know it, it does start with that. It starts with how do you get people and kids to actually play your sport, right? A lot of the traditional sports that you'll hear about in the U.S. Um, a lot of like U.S. the U.S. Golf Association, for instance. Uh, spends a lot of time thinking about where and how they can get more people to play more golf. Uh, a lot of those organizations, uh, and a lot of them are focusing on kids, you know, where and how can we get the next generation to do that. So it kind of starts with getting getting people to play your sport and be interested in your sport early. But then it's also really about what do, you know, generations of consumers want when they actually engage with the professional version of that sport or the college version of that sport. You know, how do they want to watch it? Do they want to watch it on their phone, on their TV? Do they want to watch a full game? Do they want to watch clips? Uh, do they just care about the, you know, betting on the games? Do they just care about, um, you know, the fantasy aspects of the games? And where and how do these organizations meet those consumers where they want to be met, on which platforms they want to actually um, do that with? Um, as well as importantly, kind of who they want to bring along. You know, sports continues to be a group exercise, right? Whether you're playing it in many cases, but certainly when you're watching it, it tends to be a, a group exercise. And so, you know, you got to get people to play the sport in the first place, but you also have to actually adapt the way the sport is supplied to the world in ways that, that actually meet that next generation. Um, gone are the old folks like me who you know want to just sit in their seat at a game and watch the entire game, right? New generations want to you know uh, take advantage of amenities across the stadium to go visit the um, the fantasy lounge at a stadium to bring up other games on their phone to talk to their friends in a restaurant, things like that too. And and you're seeing a lot of organizations shift um, to meet that new demand. I think one of the starkest examples of that is the rule changes we've seen in in Major League Baseball. Uh, which I am a, a, a big fan of, you know, cutting the the average time of a game down from three hours, 20 minutes to two and a half hours, even though I'm one of those people that likes to sit in my seat all game and watch the game. Uh, it's nice that it goes by faster and keeps my attention. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been really interesting to sort of watch how that's evolved. And obviously um, it's gotten a lot of attention and, and a lot of praise. 
in terms of of how that's happened and 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 the the, the the basically the enjoyment that a lot of people have of it. But it's interesting if you you know if you if you attack it from a strategy angle and a business angle that that actually creates some benefits for teams, but also some challenges. You know, shorter Absolutely. games means fewer commercial means you know. Um, you know, fewer concessions sold, things like that too. So, you know, from a business perspective, it is a give get, but you know, I, I've been taught my entire career, both by clients and, and, and by the people who've taught me how to do this, that if you focus on your customers, most other things work themselves out over time. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm sure they're thinking about it from a greater lifetime customer value perspective, uh, greater engagement, bringing more people in from the top of the funnel and even if they're not able to monetize each fan to the that same degree, uh, just more fans through the pipeline has to be a good thing, I would think. Yeah, absolutely, right. And again, to your point earlier, you know, younger fans. How do we get that next generation? So let's talk about then the P and L of a professional sports team. Uh, and for me, talking about revenue drivers is always more fun than talking about cost drivers. So let's start there. Uh, but what are the biggest levers that franchises pull or properties pull to increase the top line? You know, and it's fascinating because I think a lot of this, I think people get this once you explain it to them, but sometimes it takes it takes somebody to sort of take an approach. You have to actually approach the teams and the leagues differently on these fronts, right? They actually drive revenue some places in similar ways, other places in different ways, right? So you know, most teams, um, most teams revenue is, is driven by, uh, some combination of, um, sponsorship deals. So local car dealerships or, or, you know, local, uh, manufacturers or things like that, that, you know, put a sign in the stadium, uh, uh, buy a suite for the season, you know, r- you know, run ads on the jumbotron, things like that, put their name on the field, things like that. That's, that's typically one of the ways, you know, another way is they typically in a lot of sports have a local media deal, right? So uh, this is less so in the NFL, but for a lot of the other leagues, only some of their games are picked picked up nationally. Uh, the rest are made available to the team to sell to a local broadcaster, right? And so that that media deal that they have with the local broadcaster would drive a lot of things for the team. Obviously, tickets um, are usually a big driver at the team level. Interestingly, not as much at the league level. Um, most leagues are set up such that the ticket revenue dry- is driven by the team. And then the actual situation of the team itself you know, depends a lot. If they own their stadium, um, they usually participate in concessions um, or any of, of those types of merch and concessions revenue, whereas if they're just a leasing the stadium sometimes they don't participate in it but you know obviously there's some some different ways that you could strike those deals um uh you know they also if the team owns the stadium there's other events in that stadium besides the sporting events and where and how they drive revenue from other events uh, and other ways that they can monetize the, their investment there at the league level obviously there isn't things like ticket revenue but obviously um sponsorship Revenue and especially media deals tend to be much larger at the league level, and so that's where you see a lot of the money coming into the leagues, and and oftentimes distributed back to the teams as well um, from the leagues. Um, interestingly, you you know at the league level, you're selling bigger sponsorships, national sponsorships, sometimes global sponsorships of those as well, and then oftentimes at the league level, there's international rights, there's broadcast rights internationally, or things like that that happen too. So. I would say similar, but those are typically the places um, that this revenue comes from for most teams. 
and leagues. So a big theme uh, I picked up in that answer are, are kind of media and broadcast rights. And uh, I recently saw that the Las Vegas Golden Knights, so the NHL team, seemed to have struck a deal with a broadcast partner where all games within the local region would be broadcast for free, but then nationally broadcast games would be paid for. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting that right, but uh, can you talk us through if you think that's a model that could become more prevalent here over the next few years? Because it's definitely groundbreaking. Yeah, I, I don't know the specifics of that deal. I would say in general, this idea of local media rights and where and how teams monetize those and who they monetize them with um, is undergoing a fair amount of transformation right now. Some of it because of some business drivers, others because of advances in technology. I'd say in general, most properties, uh, and this includes the leagues as well, are trying to figure out where it, it used to be okay to be able to say, hey, you know, 500,000 or 5 million people watched my game last night. I can't tell you who they are, right? But uh, I know, you know, through various means that that many people watched it. Uh, more and more, it's not enough to just say that. You need to know who those people are, have other ways to reach them. Um, be able to talk about, you know, statistics about those audiences. And so what you're seeing a lot of properties do is figure out ways to build that one-to-one -one relationship with fans. Um, and and some organizations see the, some of these, these uh, media deals as ways uh, or new ways to sort of broadcast and share their content as ways to do that. So I, I think we're just at the beginning of seeing a bit of a revolution on that front. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Do you think that these one-on-one -on -one relationships or these seemingly personalized relationships between me and my favorite team or me and my favorite league, is this really the next big trend in the space? Uh, I, I, yes, I, I agree. And actually, I'd add to it also you and your favorite athlete, right? More and more athletes are starting to build that one-to-one -one relationship. Social media has been a boon for athletes to build their personal audiences, right? Um, and and build their you know one-to-one -one relationships with fans. So you know, where and how those relationships evolve, new ways to think about and monetize those relationships, um, either through existing revenue streams or new revenue streams is absolutely, um, you know, a, a, a big factor in how sports is going to evolve. It's honestly, it's similar to what happened in, you know, consumer industries in the grocery industry in, in retailers um, 10, 15 years ago, as they started to adopt things like loyalty programs and, and got a lot more focused on their customers as well. I think we're seeing the same thing happen in sports. I, for one, am all for the hyper-personalization. Uh, I'm, I'm there for the increased engagement uh, between me and my favorite team and league and, and athlete. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. And it's funny how what is now old hat in retail is seen as groundbreaking in a different industry like sports. And it seems like that's just the way the business world works. Uh, it's just, that's how business happens. Right? Uh, innovation in one space is, you know, legacy in another. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, consulting firms, I'm gonna take a quick sec to speak to you. Is your lack of brand awareness in a certain market hurting your recruiting efforts? Raise your firm's brand awareness and prestige and expand your recruiting pool by partnering with Management Consulted. Our expert team works with you to co-develop engaging content that speaks to future employees, potential clients, and online search algorithms alike. In addition, we help you put on curated events to speak directly to top talent in our 3 million strong community that is looking for consulting roles now. 
Reach out today to speak with a member of our team to see how we can help you showcase what makes your firm unique. Write us, team at managementconsultant.com. That's T-E-A-M at managementconsultant.com. Or find us by clicking the link in the show notes. Are you looking to break into consulting this year? In addition to continuing to listen to this podcast, there are a bunch of other ways you can engage with Management Consultant. Check out our website, managementconsultant.com. On there, one of the ways you'll find to engage with us is through Black Belt, our premium case prep program. In the program, you receive one-on-one mentorship and prep support from a former MBB consultant. They're there to guide you to offer success through developing a personalized plan for your prep and guiding you through drill-based coaching sessions. In addition, you'll receive expert resume and cover letter edits. Because let's be honest, case prep is only so good if you don't get the interview. 80% of Black Belt's land offers, which is why it's the world's most effective consulting prep program. If you're ready to quit wasting time in your prep process, join today. The next cohort of Black Belt kicks off very soon with a group training session on the fundamentals of consulting, recruiting, and spots are selling fast. Learn more, register, check out the link in this episode's show notes. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, moving back to the conversation around P&L of professional teams and, and leagues, how about the boring side of the equation, the cost side? What are some of these uh, biggest drivers that that properties are dealing with? Yeah, I, I would say at the team level, it's interesting. <laughs> One of the things I always remind people is that their, um, their, their personnel costs, their salary costs yeah. are structured a little differently than most companies where <laughs> a, uh, a small number of, of uh, people who get paid get a, a larger portion than certainly at Deloitte than, uh, than a lot of folks get. Um, so there's, there's that factor. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, it, it depends a little bit on the team situation. Obviously, um, there's certainly operational costs and whether that's on the business side um, you know, operations around either technology or, or, uh, sales or, uh, any of those things, you know, probably the one that's maybe a little different than most companies is typically there's a pretty high sales component for most teams as they try to monetize, you know, suites and, and season tickets and things like that. But the rest is, is, you know, is usually pretty standard. Most teams are actually not giant organizations. Um, people would be surprised at, at probably how few employees that their their favorite team has. Um, there's certainly another layer of operational costs uh, that have to do with actually the, the the games and the matches themselves, whether that's you know thinking about repair, prepping the field or coaches or trainers or or all of that and um, uh, transportation. Um, all of those things are, are are a piece of it as well, but. Um, you know, I, I'd say, you know, it's, it's like you said before, it's, it's other than kind of the differential sort of, uh, um, uh, employee type, uh, compensation, a lot of it is pretty typical. I'm going to grossly oversimplify here. So you have to forgive me ahead of time, but it, it, it seems like to me, there are two ways for just thinking about leagues now, uh, instead of teams, uh, two ways for leagues to continue to grow. Uh, and I would think number one, you either increase the ways in which you're monetizing existing properties. So you renegotiate media deals, et cetera, or you expand your product offering, right? So league or market expansion. Uh, can you give us some insight into how leagues are thinking about this? And, and if they identify new markets for expansion, how they do that? Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, how do I take my existing assets and either get more for them or sell them to new people? 
right? And how do I find new products to bring to market, right? And 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 um, y- you know, I, I would say on the first one, you know, media rights is a good example. Where and how can I maximize that asset? You know, how do I? You know, one of the one of the interesting strategic questions uh, for a lot of leagues is bundling. Right. When I think about um, doing my media deals, do I bundle in that my um, digital, which typically happens in most of my digital rights? Do I start to think about data rights? Do, you know, as I start to think about the metaverse, is there a, a different sort of right that I need to bundle into those deals? And, and how do I, you know, mix and match and structure those? You know, uh, the NFL has one package for Thursday, a different package for Monday, a different package for, um, um, uh, you know, red zone, uh, and then, you know, splits the other games up in different ways too. So where and how do I bundle those and package those in different ways? And so usually moving those things around and really understanding what, um, both traditional media players, but some of the new media players want is a piece of that, but also new revenue streams. My, my favorite one is, um, NFTs and, and what we saw with the NBA and hotshots, that was, you know, a brand new, uh, revenue stream similar to a, a historical revenue stream or a or a traditional revenue stream with a with a twist on it. But where and how can I find those? Right? How do I think about um, you know? In some ways you can think about it as a new team, right? That usually that adds games to the schedule. It adds athletes to the mix. Um, you know all of those things too. Um, and then you know what are some new products that I can think about? Where and how do a lot of leagues sort of think about? new places where I can license my brand, you know, who would be interesting in associating a product with my brand and was willing to pay for that in sort of new and different ways. And so, um, I don't think it's terribly different, obviously a little bit more interesting and, and sometimes sexier than some other industries, but not that different than where and how you think about any company. So do you think there's a danger, uh, for leagues in overexpansion? Uh, is there a danger that I would dilute my product if I'm in 45 markets instead of 30? Or do you think those are overblown fears? Um, I think you have to be careful, right? Um, I, you know, I, I think you do, you don't want to get too far over your skis and in 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 sort of doing it too much of that. You, you got to make sure you you've you've got enough. But yeah, I always remind people that you know. The 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 supply of people who love and are interested in sports is is not going away, right? And is in in some ways is almost never ending. And so, you know, it's really just a question of you know if I'm going to open another team, can I convince can I convince people in that city to cheer for that team versus a sport that already exists there, right? Um, uh, you know, can I can I think differently about how I structure my conferences or, or how this works? Um, my favorite, you know, I do think, you know, you talk a little bit about disruptive forces. Um, and I forget if we talked about this last time, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see when the next generation of, um, supersonic travel happens, uh, and you start to get to a world where these leagues could literally play games in other countries, you know, fly to London in a day and back. Um, and it would just like, you know, going to LA today. Right. Um, and so that's going to open up new things. So. I think there's a little bit of a risk, and, and you just got to be careful about it. But, but uh, listen, I think there's there's plenty of people out there interested and who love sport, and it's just a question of where and how you bring them to yours. So the implication, Pete, of what you just said is we may see some consolidation in the space. If I can, if I could have an NBA team in Paris, 
uh, like, and you know, I've got Victor Wembanyama on my team. Why would I be in the French? Why would I be in the French league if I could have uh, an NBA franchise in Paris? Do you think that's where we're heading in the next 30, 50 years? I mean, I don't know. I, I I think it would be interesting to sort of think about that. Or is there some sort of global, you know, different divisions of a league or or something? But I think we're absolutely I missing mean, globalization's real. Globalization is already happening right now in terms of content, um, and I think we're seeing you know the the the, the popularity uh, you know especially of, of sports you know as as for instance the NBA thinks about expanding to India and to China, um, so the, the demand's there. So I, you know I, I think we could see some interesting things on that front if we could get some of these logistical challenges out of the way. Absolutely. What are the other value propositions of a, a team coming to a city or a region? beyond just the unifying effect of fandom and the entertainment value is the fact that a lot of these teams are involved in community development. They're involved in community investment. They're, there's a big focus on teams and leagues being good community partners. Uh, can you talk to us about some tangible ways that a pro franchise contributes to broader community development? Uh, I think the Sacramento Kings are a really good example of this, but I'm sure there are others as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, listen, being... Being involved in the community, giving back to the community, and and making a difference in the community that these organizations sit in is uh, it, it. It's not just the right thing to do. It's 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 actually demanded by fans and athletes as well. You know, fans want to. I mean, every every everything you look at about how buying habits are changing, uh, people are buying uh, products and services from companies that they share values with, that they believe in, that they that they trust in, in new and different ways. And the same thing's happening with athletes. Athletes look, you know, more and more athletes are looking to see what other athletes are doing and saying, listen, I need to use my platform to make a difference. And, and you know, doing that in a local community, whether that be through community organizations or, or creating direct access, um, is absolutely a piece of the puzzle. It's almost it's almost table stakes now for any organization that really wants to to dive in. And, and I'm not familiar specifically with what Sacramento's doing, but um, just about every organization has versions of these programs, both at the team and the athlete and the league level, that are super important. Pete, one of the things that your practice has done and released recently uh, is a 2023 sports industry outlook. Uh, and so we talked about this briefly last time, uh, but we got a lot of follow-up questions around some of the insights uh, and key takeaways that were included in that report. Do you mind just quickly elaborating on some of the potential implications uh, of what your team found uh, and just some some insights from that report? Sure. Anything specific or just talk more broadly? Yeah, you know, I'd love to to hear more broadly what some of those insights were, and then we can follow up uh, on what uh, what I find most interesting. I mean, the one that I talk a lot about, um, and I think is is one of the more interesting ones, is uh, we are absolutely seeing women's sports, you know, finally getting the recognition or start to get the recognition and the the um, the, the attention that it deserves. Right? We've been looking at data for years that talks about more people watching women's sports, more people participating in women's sports, more people, um, um, you know, wanting to get involved in women's sports. And we haven't necessarily seen some of the dollars that would normally be associated come, come with that, but people are finally waking up to it. 
Um, and, and not in, you know, in a, you know, both in a societal way, like it's important to promote women's sports from a societal standpoint. Um, but also, uh, from a business standpoint, I, I'm a firm believer that, that women's sports is one of the most, uh, undervalued assets that, that exists in the sports world. And, you know, when we talk to our clients, you know, we say to a lot of them, listen, if you're not investing in women's sports right now, you're, you're behind the curve, right? And you're, you know, two, three years from now, you're going to wish that, that you had. And so I think we are just at the beginning of that really starting to grow. I think it's going to continue to accelerate. And I think we're going to see a lot more um, uh, consistent uh, data uh, around the fact that it's that the the people who who watch this, um, you know, who are involved in and and like women sports digging into it. And, and honestly, we're also seeing interesting emerging data um, that shows that the people who do choose to watch women's sports and the people who are watching it are more loyal, are more invested in the products that are associated with women's sports. And so for me, the, the, the exciting part is, you know, it's not just important for the, the, that women's sports be successful or for, for, for women and girls, you know, it's a business reason. And so that for me is exciting. And I, and I do think it connects to the other one, which, which I hear a lot about is, you know, the entrance of formal private equity into the sports world in a way, in the U.S. anyway, in a way we haven't seen before. Um, and I think that will be for both women's sports uh, as well as men's sports as well. And so we're seeing organizations come in, um, buying up minority interests in teams and thinking about those as assets that, you know, have, you know, valuations that grow at a scale that actually outgrows a lot of industries. And so we're seeing a lot of a lot of uh, private equity firms and other special purpose vehicles creating dedicated groups uh, that just focus on sports and, and, and think about sports uh, as their, their, their sort of everyday activity as opposed to an every once in a while activity. So for me, those are, those are fascinating um, and, and it'll be interesting to really see how those grow. I'd also just say that college sports uh, which was another one of our outlook items just continues to be a place where we're I, I there's very few places in sports that are changing as rapidly and as fundamentally as college sports right now the effect of of nil regulations and the transfer portal portal and conference realignment and media deals um and and what we're seeing on a bunch of different fronts um i you know, college sports is going to look very different than it did two years from now than it did two years ago in ways that that even I am having a hard time predict so Pete there's a lot there to unpack a couple follow-ups if you don't mind <laughs> yeah so one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is uh the entrance of private equity into professional sports are you seeing these transactions being made uh you know as buy and hold transactions or do you expect to be there to be more turnover and ownership the more that we see private equity uh, enter the professional sports landscape, yeah, I think I think there are a lot of buy and hold transactions. At least from what I'm seeing right now, there, or at least they're being done without any. You know, there's a bunch of people in that space who are a lot smarter than I, who who have you know long term plans about what those to do. But you know, the 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 market is so nascent right now, and and things are so new that that I think you almost have to be ready for a buy and hold type of um, outlook on it, but also be ready if, you know, if there are opportunities coming up. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Um, there are some folks out there who try to make it even, even easier um, 
to get in and out of teams in ways that I think will be fascinating and maybe even available to folks like you and I at some point here. Um, although that day may be far, far in the future, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point here, um, one of the leagues, you know, allows something to similar to what the green Bay Packers does, but, but in a more liquid way and a more tradable way, um, uh, that we're seeing today. Fractional ownership in a sports team. Is that where you think we're heading? Uh, well, we're there already, right? Most sports teams do have fractional ownership, but what doesn't exist is, is a liquid market for that. Exactly. So, and I think that might be coming again. We've got a bunch of different steps between here and there, but sometime in the future, I think someplace in some league that that's going to be a piece of the puzzle. Personally, I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, who, you, uh, who are you buying? If you could, if you could buy a piece of any team right now, who are you buying? You know, it's so funny. That was going to be uh, my question for you. So if, uh, if money wasn't an object, I think I'd be in the bid thing for Manchester United right now. Uh, you know, personally, I don't think the Brown family would ever sell, but my hometown team is the Bengals. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think from a from a heart perspective, the Bengals are the team I'd love to buy. From a business perspective, Manchester United looks pretty good right now. Yeah. Don't uh, don't sleep on women's sports, though. I'm telling you, that's that's going to grow exponentially. You know what's so funny? I was thinking about this the other day, you know, uh, and talking to a friend. And we had a similar conversation, you know, if, if you could buy any team in the world, which team would you purchase? Uh, and from a purely business perspective, my answer was actually I'd buy a team in the National Women's Soccer League. Uh, from a kind of lower barrier to entry perspective, uh, kind of the growth of the market, uh, j- just the fact that soccer in general is uh, exploding in popularity in the in the U.S., uh, I-, I thought the NWSL was pretty attractive. Uh, and so it's interesting to hear you talk about women's sports because I'm feeling pretty affirmed right now in my own kind of market analysis. <laughs> you can uh, you can tell your friend that Pete says you were right. Okay. I love that. That's that's the whole reason I wanted you to come on the podcast. <laughs> um, when you were talking about the NCAA, uh, kind of as a fan looking at, at the NCAA from the outside looking in, I'm thinking the big winners in conference realignment are the Big Ten and the SEC. Uh, do you see a path for other conferences to compete with those so-called super conferences? Um, you know, I, I I think the real question is is where and how are we? And and again, I'll go back to I'll, I'll just go back to fans. Where and how do we, you know, do we get to a world where people can continue to watch the football, the basketball, the gymnastics, uh, the track and field? You know. Um, that they want to watch between the teams that they want to see play with each other, and I, you know, I think I think customer demand and fan demand and booster demand and and even athlete demand will continue to sort of dictate that. So I don't like to talk that much about winners or losers in that space. You know, I like to think about where I I think business will naturally drive that market towards something that makes sense to the people who want to watch it and consume it as well, and so. Again, we might have some bumps here and there on our on our way to that, but um, and whether that means two conferences or ten conferences or one conference or a completely different model altogether, um, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, I'm, it's hard to imagine that there there won't be some sort of conference structure that'll exist um, as part of this. But I think importantly is where and how do we meet fans where they want to be met? And I think I think there's a lot of really smart people in college athletics who get that. And and will naturally drive the the entire ecosystem towards that. Seems to me that we're just seeing the professionalization of college athletics, 
And I don't think that's a bad thing, but there are people out there that seem to think that's a negative. Uh, you have a comment to make on that? You know, I'd say professionalism is a very um, uh, heavy and and implication laden wor- word. Um, you know, I you know I would say you know generally college sports you know in many ways is a business like a lot of businesses, and I think um, I think we'll continue to see it sort of grow in the same way we're seeing other sports businesses grow as they they sort of learn from those businesses as well. How's that for a non-answer? Very consulting-like of you. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I got to tell you, it's just uh, as some, you know, as a business professional, as a consultant, as as a strategist, it's just fast. I mean, we are watching in re- real time, you know, the realignment of an entire industry in ways that you don't often get to see happen, you know, at the speed we're actually watching this. And it's it's just fascinating to see how such a complex system, which, which, you know, has a bunch of um, both real, but also sometimes, you know, invented um, constraints to it, um, strain at the edges and evolve over time. And I think we're watching that almost in real time in a way that for me is fascinating. And, and there's a lot of really smart people in that space. Um, You know, what the NCA is, you know, starting to talk about and do what the conferences are doing, what the colleges are doing, what their broadcast partners are doing. A lot of really smart people in, in in that space that I think are going to do some really interesting things moving forward. And I'm just, I'm fascinated to watch it and, and hopefully fascinated to be able to help along the way. Pete, as we wrap up our conversation today, uh, you might remember from last time we end with a couple of personal questions uh, just to get to know you a little bit better. And so I want to turn around your question to me back to you. Uh, if you could make an investment or purchase one uh, professional sports team anywhere in the world, which one would it be and why? Yeah, you know, it definitely would be a women's team um, or 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 some other property somewhere. There's there's a lot of interesting innovations happening in women's sports just on the notion of a league. Um, probably something in the women's space. Um, um, my my first love is basketball, so probably something in the basketball world because I feel like I at least know something about that. Uh, so probably something in that world would be where I'd personally go. Um, but I think there are a lot of options out there and. Yeah, I think it'd probably be in that space. I'm trying to think about, you know, that's the the business answer, but I think it's also the personal answer too. So. I love that. Uh, is there an underrated sport that you love, that you follow, that you wish more people knew about? I, you know, it's it's hard for me to, so, I mean, I love most sports generally. There are a couple sports that I'm fascinated by that I actually, um, actually wanted to go see because because there's actually nothing more exciting for me to actually go watch a new sport and see a new sport. Um, yeah. When I was just in Australia, I'm not sure if you're familiar in in uh, pr- primarily in the UK and Australia they play uh, a game called netball. Have you ever heard of it? I have. Um, and it's it's basically a <laughs> from what I understand it's basically a version of basketball that emerged. Um, when somebody either miscopied or misremembered uh, Naismith's original basketball rules. There's no backboard, right? Yeah, no backboard, no dribbling. Uh, there's a few things missing. Um, you know, courts sort of split into thirds. And similar to my last trip uh, in Australia, I got to go see an Aussie rules football game. Um, next time I want to go see a netball match because um, uh, I'm just fascinated by it. Amazing. Uh, an Aussie rules game is definitely on my list next time I'm down in Australia and New Zealand for sure. Just just make sure you go see it with somebody who uh, who knows the rules because it takes a little while. 
Yeah, it, it looks like controlled chaos to me when I've seen it. So I definitely need someone to explain it. Looks like it hurts. Yeah, that too. That too. Some of the toughest athletes in the world. Bro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not made for uh, uh, 50 year old sort of former athletes. Uh, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, Pete, last question for you. Uh, if you've been granted, uh, if I was a genie and I could grant you the ability to master any sport right now, which one would you choose and why? If I can choose a sport to be an expert in and why, you know what I might choose um, just because I find it fascinating is curling. Because um, it also feels like something that might actually be something that 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 somebody my age could perhaps still be somewhat competitive in. And so, but it also just looks like I, I love, I've actually tried it a few times. It's, it's a deceptively complex sport. Um, mm. And physical sport in ways um, that that I wasn't expecting, and I don't think most people realize. But it also seems like the people who play it have a lot of fun too. So that that appeals to me. So that's a curveball for sure. I was not expecting that. So <laughs> I love it. You're keeping us on our toes here. Uh, Pete Giorgio is the sports practice leader at Deloitte Consulting. He joins us from. At Deloitte's offices in New York City. Pete, thanks so much for being with us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Strategy Simplified. Did you like what you heard? Leave us a rating or a view on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. We need your help to let the algorithms know that Strategy Simplified is a podcast worth listening to. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.